RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Back at the end of April, you may remember we had a guest from Australia, Professor Gigi Foster, Professor of Economics at the University of New South Wales. She regularly appears in Australian media on the topic of economics. She's been a panellist on discussion shows, Q&A, and host of a radio show on ABC. And she was named Young Economist of the Year for 2019 by the Economic Society of Australia. And back then, we were talking crowd dynamics, COVID economics, and concerns for the future. Well, I don't know if much is going to change in terms of headings I just gave you uh, for our latest chat, because Gigi is back with us. Gigi, good to hear from you again. I hope you're well. Thanks for having me on the show, Paul. Well, I'm just recovering from a, uh, a supposedly COVID infection, actually, but, you know, it's basically the flu. So hopefully my voice holds up reasonably well. You know, I've been uh, hitting the zinc and the vitamin C and vitamin D, going outside, quercetin, you know, the whole the whole shebang. Unfortunately, can't get ivermectin, but, you know, them's the breaks. Yeah, well, you know, it's, uh, it's horse dewormer anyway. So. Oh, yeah, that's right. Sorry. Yeah. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think you needed reminding of that. Yeah. All right. So last time we talked, um, a lot of people went and listened to the replays. And um, you've done a bit since then, and I want to get into that. So the latest uh, piece that you've written, and this is on the Center for Independent Studies, the title is Cohort of Losers, Generational Burden of Government covid response. So Gigi, obviously you've been sort of quantifying now the mm. the cost of all of this. How mm. have you gone about that? Well, so this latest report for the Center for Independent Studies is drawing heavily on a cost-benefit analysis of Australian lockdowns that I published back in 2022 with Sanjeev Sablock. I think we may have mentioned this on your show uh, the last time I was on, called Do Lockdowns and Border Closures Serve the Greater Good? And in there, we essentially do what we think the government should have done, which is to weigh up the, the estimated costs and estimated benefits of the lockdowns that we had here in Australia in terms of something that we think is something valuable, some some kind of currency that everybody can get behind. Um, it's not just dollars. It's not just profits or economic growth or something like this. It's actually human well-being, human thriving. Um, and what I really like about this CBA is that focus on and privileging of human thriving as the thing that matters. Um, so we use a currency that's been recently invented uh, maybe four or five years ago by my colleague Paul Freiders and his uh, and his team at the London School of Economics that's called the Wellbe, the Wellbeing Year. And that measure is built from a question that appears on many social scientific surveys worldwide and has done for decades, which is overall, how satisfied are you with your life as a whole? Um, that basically is a, a life satisfaction kind of question. And people answer on a scale of zero to 10. And one well-be is one increment on that zero to 10 scale enjoyed for one person for one year. Right? So that's kind of a measure of human thriving, a measure of satisfaction with life. And of course, it's an overall subjective assessment. So we are believing people implicitly when they say, I'm happy or I'm not happy with my life overall, I'm satisfied or not. And of course, that then means that they are able to weigh in whatever way for them feels appropriate, the various different aspects of life that we can all imagine might be important, such as your relationship quality, your job quality, whether you're happy with your physical health, whether you're mentally stable, uh, whether you are you know, feeling good in your ability to afford things for your family, right? All sorts of different aspects of overall well-being that might feed into this. And so as a kind of comprehensive 
measure in some way of, of human well-being. And of course, it's a, a different measure than what is often used in cost-benefit analyses, which usually is dollars or the currency of the realm, right? Some kind of uh, uh, actual monetary currency. Um, and, you know, economists are often criticized, I think rightly, for focusing so much on things like dollars or economic growth, because those things don't necessarily translate directly into human thriving, but it is human thriving that we're after. In fact, the, the, the discipline as a whole is oriented towards maximizing total aggregate welfare. And how do we measure that? Well, we've never really had consensus on what is the right way to measure that. And even the well-being is not perfect, but in my view, it's it's a darn sight better than other things we've got going. And so we do that entire cost-benefit analysis in that currency, and that currency can be translated as well over to dollars through basically a uh, an observation of what we pay in normal times to buy quality of life through our uh, our various health pharmaceutical benefit scheme kind of um, organizations, which purchase drugs and medical interventions from drug companies that um, essentially price them per what we call quality, quality adjusted life year. So you'll, you'll right. have, you know, one of our TGA representatives going and negotiating with a biopharmaceutical company. And this, this company says, oh, we have this new drug um, and, you know, we can provide an extra, you know, 10 qualities per dose. Well, the TGA will only spend up to a certain price threshold per quality, <clears throat> right? So that's, right. that's basically its, its decision rule. And so you take that threshold and you say, well, okay, that's the amount that we're willing, apparently, right, in Australia to spend per quality. And then quality can be translated to well-be because, as I mentioned, that, that one unit increment, right, is one well-be for, you know, enjoyed for one person for one year. A quality is equal to one for, uh, to represent one healthy life year, right, healthy life year. And a healthy life year is roughly six well-bees because um, on that zero to 10 satisfaction scale, I know there's not a lot of numbers, but just to explain to your audience, on that zero to 10 life satisfaction scale, an eight is usually what you'd respond uh, on average in a, in a sort of developed country if you're healthy and feeling good. <clears throat> and a two is what you'd respond if you're kind of indifferent between living and dying. And so eight minus two is six. That, that number of, of increments on the life satisfaction scale enjoyed for one person for one year is essentially equivalent to a quality. Um, there's some technical details, but that's roughly correct. So then if we know how much a quality is worth to Australia, which is somewhere between 50 and $100,000, as it happens, from what the TGA's price threshold is, and then we know that well-bees can be, can be translated to dollars, um, then we can express the well-be costs and benefits of lockdowns in dollar terms if we wish. And so that's what I have done in this latest report with the CIS, which I, which I focus um, attention on um, sort of what has happened to the youth because the CIS was interested in the intergenerational burden of our COVID policy response. So I basically take the, those um, estimates from the cost benefit analysis and then say, well, what fraction of these costs and benefits are attributable specifically to our youth? That is to people who are 25 and under roughly uh, during the COVID years. And what we find, uh, what I find in that report is that we've, we've basically imposed costs equivalent to something like $116 billion, um, wow. which is a huge amount, right? Uh, and for very little benefit for the youth, because as you know, COVID was not a huge threat to the youth, right? There wasn't really much to be gained from protecting the, the young people uh, from COVID. Um, and in fact, if anything, they benefited you know, from things like not not uh, being able to go to pubs only in the sense that they maybe didn't accidentally off each other because they didn't get drunk and then have, you know, accidental homicides. Like that's the sort of thing that, that young pregnancy. Benefited from. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so really, you know, would we want to lock down whole economies to get, deliver that kind of benefit? I mean, that's just 
it's almost obscene. So, so that's what I have done. And, um, you know, and I, and I hope that more people do these kinds of studies. I have seen a lot of cost benefit analyses now recently coming out um, or analyses, evaluations generally of lockdowns during the COVID era. And I haven't seen one yet, one serious analysis that says, that concludes that lockdowns were a good thing to do. Yeah. So um, the, the real burden is, is on the young. Well, I mean, they're the ones who are going they're, to be they're pay for it. this time. They're going to, yeah. I mean, they had, not only did they have huge mental health costs from the lockdowns themselves in that you know, that immediate period, but they also are going to have to deal with the, the need to pay back all the debt that we accumulated. And that means that there's going to be less spending on everything else that makes life longer and better and, and more enjoyable in the future, which includes health and education and infrastructure and everything else, right? All the government expenditures that we usually in, in normal times think of as the main drivers of higher quality of life in developed countries. So governments won't be able to afford as much of that because they'll have to pay off the debt, right? So that's another big cost. And then you'll have obviously the reduction in human capital uh, accumulation because we closed schools and uh, you know messed people around at universities as well. And of course the babies that were born during COVID were often you know, starting life surrounded by people in masks. What is that yes. gonna do to babies, yes. you know, intellectual and, and just development of things like empathy? I mean, for heaven's sakes, you know, probably the number one most important thing to give a child is the ability to empathize with other people. And if you're blocking your face, you know, when you're talk, taking care of your baby, they, they don't they can't even tell what you're feeling at all. So it's it's that that I think could be catastrophic for some kids. I mean, I hope that many families will have taken masks off and, and you know, follow their own human instincts in, in raising their kids. But there definitely will have been an effect there. And we're not going to really know what that effect is until, you know, a few years from now when we can reliably test some of those that that cohort of kids. I can't believe that uh, you would uh, launch an operation like this and not do a basic cost, even just on the dollars, cost benefit analysis. I mean, no. that's such a that's such an orthodox thing to do, especially as the scale gets bigger because the consequences are potentially more impactful, dramatic, et cetera, especially when you're talking about the population of a country. And no one did that. Well, I mean, I brought this up back in April 2020 on ABC's Q&A program, and I remember having this conversation with people, you know, everybody else on the panel, of course, was all pro-lockdown and, you know, COVID is the, the, the biggest threat since the Second World War and all this stuff. And I remember saying, you know, what is it going to cost? At what cost? You know, have you thought about the other side of the equation? I kept saying these things and I just got blank stares. I mean, people just literally were not thinking about it. And it's it's that kind of blindness that I think is the result of and really clued me into the fact that this was a function of a crowd dynamic, a, a dynamic of fanaticism that had developed around an obsession. You know, you obsess about something and you just forget about everything else. It's like, you know, when if you've ever seen or been um, seen a person in, in in like infatuated love or been yourself in infatuated love, you know, you you sort of only focus on the loved object and, and you really don't notice other things. You may not notice whether you're eating or drinking or sleeping properly or, you know, whether your house is a mess or, you know, whether your other friendships are in good nick. You know, a lot of things that normally matter just stop mattering entirely and you're just fully focused on the one obsession. That's what it was like. Right. It was an obsessive um, focus on this one thing that possessed the entire society. Right. 
right? So that's what I mean by a crowd dynamic, which of course we speak about in my prior book about the COVID period, the great COVID panic with Paul Fighters and Michael Baker. We have a whole chapter on crowds, which was for us the greatest learning of, the, of this period, right? Because we hadn't seen crowds up close. So, so that's what I think, you know, really clued me in. And I remember after that show, after that April show, I think it was, or maybe after the July show, because I was on again in July, I had a little tete-a-tete with one of the other panelists. And she said to me, I, I think I... I think I might maybe be starting to see what you're talking about. And I remember saying, yeah, okay, keep thinking, keep trying, keep trying to use your brain. But of course, you know, she will then be sucked right back into an environment in which everybody around her is talking COVID, 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 you know, all that matters is COVID. We must, we must sacrifice, da, 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 da. And, and she just loses the, loses the grip on her mind again. Right. And I've seen this happen as well for people. You can have a conversation one-on-one with them and you think you're making a bit of progress. You're starting to open their eyes to sort of a rational, sane way to view these things. And then they just get sucked right back into the madness by their social environment. And then the next time you talk to them, their, their mind is, you know, hijacked again. So it's, it's been very uh, frustrating <laughs> to say the least. And yeah. I know, I know that frustration. So do you think that um, understanding the cost of this, even just in dollars could wake people up because when they realize their taxes aren't going down, that the, the, um, the debt of the nation, I, I think um, you've said, I saw a figure of over half a trillion. Yeah. 616 billion, I think was the total cost. Yes. So this now, was in the in the cost benefit analysis uh, for the entire uh, period. No, not just looking at the young. But that's a huge amount of money. Yeah. But honestly, I don't think, Paul, that that figure is really going to move hearts and minds. What moves hearts and minds is effect on the personal wallet. And that is actually something that's starting to happen here in Australia. I'm not sure about in New Zealand, but we've had such skyrocketing inflation and such inability to to move the dial, even with, you know, ratcheting up the cash rate, which the RBA has been doing. You know, poor Philip Lowe is catching huge amounts of heat. That's our Reserve Bank governor uh, for, for doing that because... He's basically become the scapegoat for the inflation monster. And and people are really feeling the pinch. Their their mortgages have gone up. Some people's mortgage payments have gone up by, you know, huge percentage, like 50%, right? Um, So that really puts a big- That's uh, thousands a month, right? Yeah, potentially thousands of dollars a month. That that puts a huge spanner in your ability to pay for things, right? Just for everything else that you need, right? Food and education and, you know, just warmth in your home, right? electricity. So so and and the government's ability to really do much about that is quite limited because first of all the RBA is only able to use monetary policy whereas this is I think more a, a fiscal policy uh residual effect right we just spent so much during covid while stopping the economy that of course is creating inflationary environments um not just here in Australia but we saw that as well in America in, in New Zealand. Um, and, you know, again, I was saying this at the time. I remember asking somebody at an RBA f- seminar sometime in 2020, I think it, 2021, I think it was. Um, I just remember saying, are you worried at all about stagflation? Because I don't know if you remember, but back in the 70s, stagflation yeah. was a thing, right? Stagnation plus inflation. During and, Carter, uh, yeah. Yeah, Jimmy Carter. That's right. So, I mean, I wasn't around then, but my my parents uh, were wise enough to um, purchase a few zero coupon bonds. And the return on those bonds at that huge interest rate is what ended up putting me through university. Thank goodness. Right. Because in the U.S., the university is very expensive. So, um, well, it put me through three years and I have to take a loan out for the rest of it. But, you know, it was that was really fortunate. Right. Um, but that was what I was expecting. And I basically got left out of the online room right, for asking that question about stagflation. And now what do I see? in the economy, well, certainly you see the inflation, 
you don't really see stagnation as, as we saw in the 70s, um, but you do see this weird mix of economic signals, right? We have these labor shortages, supposedly, right? Skilled labor shortages, which- Yeah, are can being- I ask you about that? Because we have a yeah, similar yeah. problem here. Yeah. I'm trying to understand why there's a shortage now when there didn't seem to be. Yeah. Um, in fact, it was difficult to get some jobs because, um, you know, in some sectors, uh, there weren't too many going. But now- kind of some employers are on their knees for yep. uh, so i'm trying i mean have, have the people disappeared have they decided that i'm not going to work uh, i mean what's have you got any clues as to why that might be well it's a really good question and it's actually something that i'm i'm just starting a research project on because i was hoping somebody else would look at this but i don't really think it's going to happen and and part of the reason i don't think it's going to happen is that one of the main possible causes is basically lower physical and mental health due to right. the lockdown policies and the vaccine rollout, right? Um, whereby people are just not able to kind of come to work and like and sickness. Put in Let's call it it's it's mass sickness, sickness. Is it? Sure, there's some sickness or just ill ill preparation for the workforce, right? You don't feel right. your health is as reliable. Um, you're not mentally prepared as much as well, right? I mean, this really has hurt people's spirits this whole period. Um, so there, again, it's physical and mental combined. And if you look at the excess deaths, right, we've lost tens of thousands more people than we should have since the end of 2021. Nobody is asking about why that's the case, right? Unbelievably here in Australia. But if you imagine that that amount of excess deaths has got to be paired with some amount of excess morbidity, right, like excess sort of not quite death, but something bad, then that would be a a pretty significant amount of morbidity. I mean, with most things, you know, if you have deaths because of that thing, you also have morbidity because of it. Take cancer, right? A lot of people die of cancer every year. Another huge, in fact, even much larger fraction of people are debilitated because of cancer symptoms, right? Similarly, with the excess deaths, I would expect debilitation to match those excess deaths will also be happening, but hasn't really been properly measured and accounted for. And again, most economists in Australia still have their head in the sand about you know, what has been going on during these, this period. And if they were to really put their minds to understanding labor shortages, they'd have to look hard at that possible dis- disablement that has afflicted the workforce and they don't really want to do it. Right. So I think that's one possibility. Another obvious one in the case of Australia and New Zealand, particularly, is that our immigration levels have gone down a lot. Um, and we'd have a very highly skill uh, biased immigration program, right? We, we bring people in because of their skills. Um, and we have a family immigration program too, but the skill, skill selective um, immigration program is quite large. And so when you reduce that, then you end up having fewer skilled people to draw on in the country. And so that will then potentially contribute to the skill shortages. So those are two big things. And then you also have a, a bunch of other kind of maybe non-COVID related uh, trends. So, you know, a trend towards casual work, a trend towards longer childhoods, people staying, you know, living with their families uh, from their parents until they're in their 20s, maybe even, right? Not getting kicked out when they're 18, like like you and I probably did. Um, 16. And, and- 16, there you go. Uh, I was actually 14. I went to boarding school then. Um, and then, you know, when when you are addicted to mobile phones and, uh, you know, instant gratification through that kind of uh, digital technology, you may not really be mentally up for uh, a proper day's work, you know, in an environment where you wow. actually have to focus and pay attention, right? So, so I think employers may be getting frustrated with the quality of labor that's coming in the door. And so they're still advertising. So they may be having some casual positions that they allow some people to take, but they're not that happy with, you know, who they're getting through the door for those casual spots. So they keep the advertising for the permanent ones and just hope to find somebody. So those are my, my sort of 
top ideas about what probably is driving it. But as I say, I, I think I'm going to have to do that paper because I don't think that I'm going to see it, uh, unfortunately, from any other Australian labor economist. Um, so we're just starting to do some background research on that now. Um, I've noticed in some of the job ads, because I look every now and then, um, not that I'm looking for a job, but just because I've been curious about this, more are asking for medical reports as part of the application. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, this is another really interesting thing is the high level of absences that you've seen. Um, I've seen this even just in my my own circle of work at the at the university. There just are more people who are falling sick more frequently. Um, and that, of course, you know, throws a spanner in the works of anything that you want to schedule or plan. Um, how are you going to, you know, absolutely know that you can go and give a lecture on that day, right? It required means that you have a higher requirement for redundancy planning, for, uh, you know, postponement and lateness and all sorts of other things. It basically just means you're less efficient uh, as a as a as a producing body. And so that means that you're less competitive. So we're, we're losing competitiveness. And of course, companies want to try to you know, stem that effect. And so they're going to be asking for you know, some sort of proof that you are medically fit. Now, yeah. unfortunately, sometimes even here in Australia, that, that still you know, completely ridiculously includes whether or not you've had the COVID vaccines. <laughs> I mean, that's- well, a, That could just be a way of asking that, but um, it, there was nothing specific in, in what I saw and-, and Potentially. Your point with but me. I mean, I think what they're interested in is just, you know, mitigating the the absences. That's what they would like. Um, from an economic standpoint, of course, they want that. They want reliable workers, right? Um, and so if they knew what they were talking about, they wouldn't want people who were vaccinated um, as much as they want the unvaccinated, but you mainly just want people who are in rude health. Um, and, and, you know, this opens up a whole interesting sort of legal situation because for a long time, it's been generally thought that it's not legal to discriminate against people based on their medical status, right? Yeah. Until the COVID vaccines came along, of course. But certainly if, you know, if somebody has, let's say, diabetes or is a cancer recoverer or, uh, or, or some other thing, you're not supposed to be able to ask about that in most developed countries. You're not supposed to be able to discriminate against people because they have a health condition. Hmm. Well, you know, how are we, how is the society's norms, how are they going to evolve to try to uh, help employers to to weed out people who are less healthy? I don't know if we're going to allow that. It's going to be a very interesting space to, to, to see uh, down the track. And the other part of that, you mentioned it, is because there is a lack of skilled workers, that's obvious, um, and I'm speaking for this country, but I, I guess there's kind of similarities between here and Australia, yeah. is that there is, um, government is, um, promoting immigration to yes. plug that gap. Yes. There's been no asking the population if they're happy about that. Yeah. Uh, and eventually um, that's creating infrastructure problems. Um, and, um, and, and that's uh, noticeable in some of our cities now. And, uh, you know, it's, it's possibly making everybody a little less wealthy, even if it injects activity into the economy. So mm. that's like a backdoor way of flooding the zone. So it's very interesting you mentioned that. I actually, um, as, as one of my other hats that I wear, I co-organized the Australian Economics Olympiad, which is a high school competition for, uh, you know, budding economists. And uh, we had a, a, a policy case competition as our second round, as first round individual exam. And the, and the second round is basically students work in teams to look at a policy question. And my policy question that I set this year was on immigration. And I asked them, you know, I said, look, the Australian government is planning for 190,000 immigrants uh, over the next year. Do you think this is the right number or, or should it be higher or should it be lower? Give me economic arguments. Why? All right. 
And it was very interesting to see what these kids, so these are like 17, you know, 16, 17 year old kids from high schools around Australia, what they, what they put up as, uh, as, you know, answers to that. On the one hand, you had some teams that were saying, you know what, We've used skilled immigration for a long time. It's a nation of immigrants. We need to get more immigrants in because on net, they contribute more than the natives do to um, economic productivity. The, the longer that they're here, the more they contribute. They don't usually draw down our welfare system. And so they should, you know, we need to have more of them. And then there were teams that said, look, the huge immediate shock on infrastructure is going to be so big that it's going to further uh, depress the ability of people who are already here to afford housing and, you know, everything else that they need to live. Um, and that may stoke tensions as well, right, between the natives and the immigrants. And we know that that is an issue. It has been an issue sometimes in the past. So it was very interesting to see that kind of, you know, multifaceted and multi, multiple different perspectives and, and, you know, multiple different arguments that you can run. Um, I think that the housing problem needs to be solved as a as a first priority, the immigration thing is a separate issue. I wouldn't try to solve housing through immigration policy. I would try to solve the housing problem through housing policy. Um, and with that, there are some things that the government could do. There are some um, policy changes that we could make, uh, particularly to get the property developers more on side to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. We could have the government actually properly supporting public housing projects. Um, there are some things that could be done. In fact, I, I know a very good economist in Brisbane who has a lot of ideas. Um, I wish that some politician would call him. His name is Cameron Murray. Um, he'd, be, he'd be a great advisor in this area. But I don't think that that uh, is unfortunately on the agenda of our politicians at the moment. They want big wins and they want, you know, shiny brash knobs. They don't they don't really care about suiting the needs of the, the common man on the street. And this is a broader problem, of course, Paul, right? The people who are in power these days in, in developed countries, Western countries like Australia and New Zealand, are really setting policy or, or you know, spewing messages that are in alignment with their own career incentives and what is good for them and their cronies in a sort of longer sense, the people who they interact with, their networks, which are also at the tops of companies and other governments around the world, rather than being beholden to the interests of the people, which is what's supposed to happen in a democracy, right? We're supposed to have sort of democratic accountability of our leadership to, to the people, but that has really eroded away and elections are not providing enough of, of, a, of a, an actual um, channel from the interests of the people to resource allocation, decision-making and, and use of the machinery of state. And so to try to you know, address that, um, I've been writing a number of different blogs and a number of different ideas that uh, would, would address reform um, in the political space. One of them is to try to uh, revive some direct democratic elements in, in Australia. I think we spoke about this a little bit last time. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to mention to your audience, which they might be interested in, and, and some of that writing about those reform ideas is on this site, is a new think tank that I have co-founded together with some like-minded colleagues across the professions. It's called Australians for Science and Freedom, and the website is scienceandfreedom.org. Um, you can find there a lot of different um, sort of contributions from economists, from health people, from lawyers, um, political theorists, uh, really across the, the gamut of the professions, all talking about ways forward out of the COVID era. So one of the biggest pushes I'm trying to make is to get the resistance to be focused on future reform. What do we want our society to look like? So create that vision and then move ourselves towards that vision rather than continuing to engage with and attempt to get 
reasonable answers from a, a clearly corrupt and basically morally bankrupt system of institutions and and, and governance. Um, because I just don't think that it's worth it anymore to, to, to continue to try to get something out of those existing institutions that will really, um, you know, move us into a space that we want to be. So, um, so that's one of the main purposes of this new think tank is to be a place where blueprints can be developed that then are available when Australia is ready to think about real institutional reform. Yeah, that's the that's the point, isn't it? When when people are ready, mm -hmm. um, from your assessment, um, pressure is building, I think. But how much can people take before it gives? This is always the question I have for people like you. Mm -hmm. How much pressure can they take before it lets go? And of course, the more pressure that builds up, the harder it lets go. I know. Um, and this has been one of my main concerns is that we could potentially see the anger and the hurt of the COVID period and, and its consequences, which we're living through now, boil over into violence. And it, it has happened in the past, right? That has happened in totally, yeah. past examples. So uh, that's another reason why I'm putting a lot of effort into this think tank and, and to my writings about you know new society, because I want to give people a place where they can have some hope I guess, right? It's the, the hopelessness and the sort of despair and the sense of not being listened to and having no home, having no future path. That I think is is a real driver of the of the boiling over and the violence. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of, I'm hopeful that the anger will be more directed towards rebuilding efforts and rejection of the old uh, systems that have obviously betrayed us rather than towards actually seeking blood. Um, but I mean, I can't tell you that it won't happen, Paul, you know, <laughs> well, it's my worry. And if, um, people, uh, wake up to the fact that, that their kids, their partners, their loved ones have been very badly injured or have died through this. Yeah. I mean, that's a hell of a lot to keep a lid on. Absolutely. Especially at mass agree. scale. I completely agree. And, and, you know, I, I've written about this in the past. One of the biggest things that I think people will hold in their hearts is, um, the vaccine damage stuff, because, you know, you can't unvaccinate somebody. The lockdowns happened and then, then they're no longer here. So we can sort of say, well, that was a mistake and it was very bad, but at least it's no longer in place. Right. Yeah. yeah. The vaccines, you know, if you were coerced into taking one and, and you know, you did, then even if you didn't experience an immediate side effect, you know that that stuff is still in your body somewhere. Right. It's like you're carrying a you know, a potential bomb somewhere in your body. And the more that you hear about these stories of side effects and, um, you know, sudden deaths and everything else, the more you will, you know, wonder every time you get sick, you'll be thinking, was this because of the vaccine? You know, or if you- or every time your heart starts to race. Heart, exactly. You think, oh my gosh, am I going to, am I going to keel over here? Right. And that's, that's a real cost and a real, you know, it reminds you constantly of the betrayal. And so, yeah, I, I do think, and particularly for, you know, mothers, for example, whose children were injured. I mean, that's a, that's a phenomenal cost. That's just a, Well, that's where the line crosses, I think. Mama oh, bear. That's where the line crosses. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mothers are one of the most, you know, vicious people when it comes to, uh, you know, pain to their children, hurt to their children, as they, as they should be, right? Um, and so, fathers, yeah. I can tell you that too. Yeah, no, definitely some fathers. But particularly a, mothers, you know, um, that, that that would swing everything. Yeah, no, I agree. So I don't know how, how that's going to go, but certainly at the moment, we still don't have that large cracking open of the vaccine damage story on the mainstream media. We haven't had that yet. 
Um, we've certainly had incremental progress. And you said in New Zealand, you really don't see much of it. But here in Australia, you know, we do occasionally get a story on, on news.com, for example, you know, which a lot of people read. That's a kind of common place. And you, you'll have, you know, the story of there was a there was a lady who went through Parliament, uh, you know, giving testimony the other month, I think it was about her daughter who had died from uh, from being vaxxed. And uh, and she gave extremely articulate, passionate testimony. And that got covered on news.com, right? Right. Uh, and so there are occasionally stories like that. And I think over occasionally, time. Occasionally, though. Still occasionally. It's still occasional, but it is it is starting to, you know, crack through a bit. Because for a while, as you know, vaccine damage was like a complete no-go zone. You couldn't say yeah. anything about it or else you yeah. were a, you know, conspiracy theorist, right? But now it's sort of, yeah, okay, some people have had problems, right? Karen Phelps, the Karen Phelps case, that was also helpful. That was maybe a year ago or something now. Um, well, I so- see um, today a Seamal Hotra. And yeah. I think one of uh, your high-profile doctors, uh, somebody, Neil, the name, it's not right in front of me. Um, I can't remember the full name, but they have come out and said that Shane Warne's death yes. is related to. Now, that is high-profile enough because yep. people would have questioned, what, Shane Warne, 52, cricketer? Yep. Okay, exactly. might not have been in the best of health, but, you know, wealthy guy, all this sort of stuff. Totally. Uh, totally. But now when, when, when you hear that from, you know, esteemed names, you got to, take mm-hmm. notice maybe it's more uh, you know an avalanche of those stories that yeah might yeah and there are websites that are co- collecting this now right coverse is one where you've just got basically the ability to put up your own story of, of damage from the vaccines and i think the more we collect those examples and there's there's one what is it called died suddenly there's a there's a collection yeah. of people who you know have died suddenly obviously um yeah. so you know that i think that is all positive well, well i saw a list of 736 names the other mm-hmm. day gathered in this country most of them were under the age of 50 but it really teared me up 19 yeah 17 13 12 and this is not normal i mean the key thing from a statistical point of view you know i mean not to be cold about it but in order to really convince somebody who has a statistical mind that this is unusual you know, you need to have the study that says, okay, before the COVID vax and then after the COVID vax, and how many uh, deaths in those age groups have we seen, right? And then you say, well, there's clearly excess death here. And you see it in the ABS statistics. You see the excess deaths are, as I said before, you know, tens of thousands more than there should be um, since the end of 2021. But nobody is really, uh, you know, addressing that in this country. Um, but I think for the, for the died suddenly, particularly for the, for the deaths of young people, if we could get a good statistical analysis of how many young people actually usually die, you know, in a given mm. year, uh, pre-vax and then post-vax, it would be pretty clear. I've seen Ed Dowd's data yep. he, he was on this program and um he didn't include our countries us mm-hmm. and i think denmark was the other one that i yep. saw the graphs for but anyway the actuaries in the us have come out and and obviously the market will always tell you the truth shares exactly. and insurance particularly life insurance companies have gone down because they're paying out a huge amount more and yep. they've seen uh, they say that a 10% excess death rate is a once in a 200 year occurrence. Well, in some of the age cohorts, it's a hundred percent. That is a once in a 2000 year Yeah. by my simple maths, how you could ever ignore that. I know. I know it's unbelievable, but you're, you're seeing here, Paul, the ability of the human mind to just memory hole and compartmentalize and rationalize and just, you know, push things away that are unpleasant. You know, you've heard of other, I mean, there are other biases that we have 
that are equally astounding, even if we don't face them every day. For example, most people think that they are higher able, you know, better drivers, better lovers, better writers, better everything than the average person, right? Most people believe that, but they're not, right? I mean, clearly, right? The average is the average for a reason. There are right? some exceptions. Yeah. Uh, sure. Uh, well, there we are, right? So basically our mind is capable of filtering out yeah. so much information that's negative to the self, right? And we are, we're seeing the same thing with the COVID stuff. Most people have a psychological reason now, unfortunately, not to face what has really happened during the COVID period. And so they will use their big brains to rationalize why everything is okay and just to just to sweep away anything that they that they don't want to you know understand or face or talk about or anything else. You saw the whole Twitter storm about you know the Ed Rogan. Um, uh, suggestion of bringing together Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and uh, this pro-vaccine. The guy advocate. with a bow tie. Always be careful of people yeah, in bow ties. Yeah, exactly. And that's another interesting thing. Well, and it's is, a phenomenon yeah. I've noticed here in Australia as well. It's very difficult to find people who will sit on a panel with me and talk about COVID policy. Right. I mean, because they know, you see, they know this is the thing they know. Right. There is a there is a sense that, oh, that's going to be scary and I don't really want to. But they rationalize it by saying, well, I shouldn't even have to defend my position. It's so obvious that I'm right. Right. So they they try to assuage their own conscience and to sort of you know, put put the little worry to bed, right? They're trying to control their own fear. That's, that takes a lot of mental effort, by the way, to, you know, engage in that kind of duplicity, but they're doing it because that's protective to the self, right? Yeah. You need to protect the self. That is a psychological mandate, right? And so this is, for people who have become caught up with the COVID, you know, madness and have done things and said things that have perpetuated the madness and hurt people, right? They don't want to believe that they're like that. They don't want to believe that they have hurt people. Nobody wants to believe that they're a monster. Nobody wants to believe that, you know, they would have become a Nazi if it if they'd lived in the in the 40s in, in Germany. Nobody wants to believe that, right? So of course they're going to come up with with reasons and you know anything that will allow them not to face the music. And if that includes, I think what Hotet said was basically I shouldn't have to defend it. So obvious that vaccines are good. Right. Well, what? So, you know, I mean, you can say in response to that, that's a ridiculous statement. You know, we should have everything up for grabs in a post enlightenment uh, society where we value diversity and free expression. We should be able to discuss and debate anything and, and come to the best decision that we can for everybody's benefit whenever we can. Right. I mean, that was what I always thought that our societies were supposed to be well, set up to do. It's interesting but- that that chap Hotez, isn't it? Yeah. Um, in his uh, podcast that he did with Rogan, I saw a few bits yeah. of it. I think Rogan was questioning him about his own health. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, he, he basically admitted that he ate crap food, hardly did any exercise. He looks a bit puffy and he does. You know, the flesh tone's not too good. He's sitting opposite a guy who looks so buffed, you, you wouldn't believe it, who lives yep. a particular lifestyle. Yeah. Um, so a, a complete hypocrite. Yeah, I know. I know, but, but he doesn't see it, right? I mean, again, amazing it, lesson yeah. in human nature. Amazing lesson in human nature. He does not want to see that. This is the same, by the way, just unrelated, but it's the same reason why, you know, people don't really coalesce around the idea of class consciousness the way that that Karl Marx, you know, envisioned that they would, because nobody wants to see themselves as a loser, right? Everybody wants to see themselves as the next Bill Gates or the next 
you know, Warren Buffett or the next Gina Reinhardt or whatever. They don't yeah. want to see themselves as the downtrodden class. That's not fun. You know, that's that that feels like you're accepting that you're not good enough. Nobody wants that. So it's just not a winning strategy, which is another reason why, you know, to appeal to the, the, the needs of people, we need to provide positive stories about our communities, positive stories about our nation, positive stories about ourselves that are, you know, not that are that are minimally damaging to anybody else. So not the positive story of I did the right thing during COVID and you know vaccines are great and you know on on. But you know I I am a respectable, valuable person who makes good contributions to my society and I love myself. We want to teach kids that sort of stuff rather than teaching them a lot of the you know the ideology of today, which is much more about blame and recrimination and you know oppression and basically offense and hostility. Um, and, and it encourages people to basically question their value and, and question even their right to exist or to live on the land that they're living on, for example, right? That's not positive and healthy. That's, that's going to lead to a weakened nation. And it's certainly not a weakened nation that's going to be able to fix some of the social problems we have, which include not properly figuring out how to um, ameliorate some of the inequalities we've got in our society um, in relation to income, wealth, health, uh, all sorts of functionality, dysfunctionality. And we do need to address some of those things, but we don't do that through weakening people. Um, so, you know, I think this, this, this era has huge lessons for understanding human psychology and understanding what is needed in a, in a healthy functioning society because of the nature of humans to, to, to create that kind of joyful, thrive productive society that we all want to live in another thing i'm i'm interested in what you're doing and, and that is and there's been a lot of talk here among certain people about reinventing institutions that aren't fit obviously fit for purpose anymore yep. and and either creating parallel ones or, or over time replacing them with stuff that 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 does work you've been thinking about universities yeah yeah yeah, no, definitely. And I do think that parallel institutions are probably one of the um, more promising uh, areas to be thinking about right now for people in the resistance, less likely to lead to bloody revolution, hopefully, and more likely to lead to productive um, output. Um, and you see that that works uh, from, for example, examining the US where so many people have fled to Florida. Uh, from places like California, right, where you have different institutional settings and you just say, you know, you don't you don't try to shut down California. You just say, look, here's an alternative and people will come. Right. You build it and they will come. Right. So that's kind of the idea. And in education. So myself and my colleague, colleague and, and great friend and, and longtime co-author, Paul Friders, um, we have been thinking about this because we have a lot of experience in higher education uh, and we really passionately care about education and about um, the, the role of thinking in our society and trying to help our society and, and really um, try to provide for the community's needs. And some of the things that we've observed are those things that you'd also see in some other industries and some are specific to education. So one problem that we've observed, and you can read about this or listen about this, by the way, on, on our scienceandfreedom.org website, because we just put up a podcast about this. Um, one of the things that we've observed is a huge increase in bureaucracy over the last 10 or 15 years. So we have this massive problem of bureaucratic bloat and the bureaucracy is not actually helping us. So it's not, from an academic perspective, it doesn't take away administrative work that I would have to do. Actually, it makes more work for me the way that the administration works. 
Um, and it, it comes out of the, the sort of logic of the bureaucracy that it, the bureaucracy must retain its position. It must uh, continue to justify its role so that it can stay uh, you know, employed. And so it creates ever more protocols and practices and requirements and you know, various different things and you know, tick boxes that you must comply with. So this whole you know, compliance offices then come up and the whole system then starts over time gradually to move towards one in which the actual coalface practitioners, that is the academics, are no longer really trusted. We are seen as essentially problems, you know, kind of slightly off eccentric um, loose cannons that have to be controlled and that might, you know, do something wrong. And therefore, we have to make sure that uh, those academics are are held very strictly to particular standards of practice. Right. And we have to monitor that and, and put place, you know, put in place best practice and you must do this and must do that. So I've definitely seen that over the course of the last 20 years since I've been in higher education, a, a recession, a, a receding of the trust that I have, uh, that I feel from the administration. And of course, a ballooning in the number of administrators. We now have way more administrators than academics in a lot of universities, you know, and that's not necessary. Like you don't actually need that many administrators to run a good university. You do need good staff. You need good academics. And there are some administrators who are who are good. But a lot of the ones that are good get sucked up these days into a center of administrative, you know, uh, activity, which doesn't really have a tether to the ultimate mission of the university, which is teaching and research. So that's one of the big problems that we see. Um, we also see that universities these days are not well tethered to the needs of the communities that pay their bills. So the research that academics in, in uh, universities today in Australia engage in is not frequently well informed by what communities actually think is important. And I'll give you an example in economics. Uh, there are very few people I know in academic economics today who are studying the impact of inflation in Australia on people's quality of life or, or you know, standard of living. Now, that's got to be the number one thing that, that people care about right now. Right? Why are we not studying that? I mean, obviously, I talk about it a bit myself, but there's really no incentive to write about that in academic journals because the academic journals don't really care. The academic journals are much more oriented towards technical precision and sophistication and, you know, cool new ideas that are kind of intellectually exciting, but may have no bearing at all or very little bearing on what is really happening in societies. And so we feel that that, that disconnection from what is useful and helpful for to communities is a real problem in higher education today. Um, so those are just two of the problems. We, we go through a number of other ones, but then we basically come up with an, a notion of uh, what would we like a new institution to look like. Uh, and certainly one of the uh, elements is to not have too many bureaucrats. When you have them, make them close to the academics. So put them very close to the coalface. So they are encountering students every day. You don't create this, this siloed ivory tower of bureaucrats, which are just you know, engaged in bureaucratic activity for its own sake, right? You always put those bureaucrats right next to the people who are doing the real work at the university. You make them responsive to the needs of those people. And ideally, you put KPIs, that is key performance indicators, in place for the administrators, which are tethered to whether or not they're actually helping the academics achieve the teaching and research and engagement mission of the university, because that's what the university is there for. Well, right? now there's a thing. <laughs> 
I know. Like, I mean, that's what their, their KPIs should be about, right? Um, and then also we think that there should be more community in, engagement and involvement, um, ideally through having a, a version of our citizen juries idea applied, whereby the community can appoint the, the top of the university, the, the main management levels um, themselves. So you have the jury of the of the citizenry of the people who are uh, in the community that the, the university is serving, actually just saying who, who the vice chancellor is going to be, who's going to be the, the dean of students, who's going to be the dean of research, etc. Um, and then and, you know, a, a continual monitoring uh, through that citizen jury process to make sure that uh, th these people are fulfilling the function according to what the university's community requires, rather than just according to what some egghead international community that's detached from reality actually is, is uh, expecting, um, because that's the way the careers are now made in academia, and it's very unfortunate. So that's that's what we've put up there. I hope people enjoy it. We'd love some feedback on that. Okay. Um, of course, you've got to remember who always is paying the bills, right? I mean, never forget who's paying. Of course. No, absolutely true. Absolutely true. And look, I have to have a shout out to my employer as well for paying my bills. You know, I haven't lost my job this whole time. Amazingly. So thank yeah, you. Well Sully. done. Um, and I did give one positive and one negative example about UNSW in my uh, in my podcast. So, you know, they're a balanced view, I hope. Um, but look, at least they've got me. So that's that's got to be a positive you know, thing. They're allowing me to speak. And uh, and I appreciate that. I think there'll be more of exploring parallel ways of doing things across um, so. multiple areas, sectors. I, I hope so. And we certainly see that in some of our alternative health communities here. So the Australian Medical Network um, and, and AMPS, the Australian Medical Practitioner Society, they've started already talking about things like alternative insurance mechanisms, alternative quality verification mechanisms, alternative certification systems for doctors um, to basically replace APRA and, uh, and a lot of the other, you know, the existing insurance schemes that don't pay for things like let's say Chinese traditional medicine or massage or, you know, supplements when a lot of people want that kind of health support and they don't want the latest me too drug from the biopharmaceutical complex. So, uh, you know, I think there's real promise in those alternative methods. Back to economics, just quickly to end on, mm -hmm. uh, inevitably things go in cycles though. This is a weird one. I don't, I don't think this is part, well, there've been world wars before, I guess that have got in the, in the mix of economic cycles. And, and some would say that uh, it's a great way to reset things, but so many people, <laughs> so many yeah. people die for it. Can, yeah. can you see a time ahead where, you know, this all sort of works its way out of the system at some point? Uh, look, uh, it's not going to be soon. Um, I can tell you that. There's just too much, again, too much psychological scarring and uh, residual rationalization uh, going on and too much incentive to not see what has happened. Um, and we have a lot of apathy as well. You know, in Australia, we had a lot of apathy even before COVID, which is a real problem in terms of providing a, a system that really reflects the voice of the people. If the people don't want to give their voice, <laughs> right, if they don't care, if they don't see their civic duty to stand up for what's in their interest, then guess what? They're going to get what's coming to them, which is yeah. the power vacuum will be filled by elites who don't have their interests at heart and are just trying to, you know, rent seek on the wealth of the country. And that's exactly what we've got right now. So, so that's a real problem. And, uh, and I'm not, you know, not hugely optimistic about that, particularly considering that the education system here is still, um, you know, kind of faltering and is, is not teaching kids that kind of civic duty. I've been trying to get civics education into high school uh, curricula for, for a decade and, you know, I've written about it and talked to people about it. Very difficult to get it. It's already been used actually in many uh, countries. We've had about uh, seven or eight uh, cost-benefit analyses of lockdowns in the using the Welby currency, and I think it's uh, it's lined up to be the next great uh, measure that will hopefully replace GDP as the thing that governments are targeting. Okay, 
Gigi Foster, thank you again. All the best. Thank you so much for having me on, Paul. Thanks. Bye. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.